0: Morning. Hope everyone's doing well. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. I'm very blessed to have a a, a great father. Um, I used the Christmas vacation joke on the last service, and it kind of fell dead. But I said he taught me everything I need to know about exterior illumination, which he did, um, which is not a lot. Um, <laughs> But in all seriousness, I, I love my dad, and he's always been a, a good source of advice for me, and he's, he's a good and decent man, but more importantly, he's shown what it looks like to put the needs of others above yourself, so I, I do thank him for that. And I'll be honest, when I saw the sermon was falling on Father's Day, I thought, wow, I've got to change this up a bit. You know, maybe uh, we should be preaching out of Ephesians, where Paul tells us the importance of, of, of being a father. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that the importance does lie with knowing our Heavenly Father. And so, though it's good and right to honor fathers today, our focus should always be on the Heavenly Father. So today, we're going to be in the book of Daniel. And so Daniel was written by Daniel uh, sometime in the 6th century. And the events of the book occur between 605 to 530 B.C., And for the shameless Dead Sea Scrolls plug, uh, here it is. At least eight manuscripts of the book of Daniel have been found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so there's never been any question to the inclusion of of Daniel in the Old Testament canon. But what, what perhaps is probably more interesting is that in the book, the writing is actually a mixture of both Hebrew and Aramaic. And though scholars disagree on why that is, there's a consensus that this is still one work by one author. So not many works assembled together. So really interesting uh, for, for a side study there. But I also love the theology of this book because it's simple and it's straightforward. Because the theology here is God is sovereign and all things will happen according to his plan. And no matter how dire the present circumstances his will will be done. So stay faithful. So very straightforward in this theology. The title of this sermon today is "Conviction Under Fire." So in this case, the fire is just as much literal as it is figurative, because we're going to be looking at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three friends of Daniel who are thrown into the fiery furnace due to their conviction. And we're going to address three specific topics from this scripture. The forces that reveal a life of conviction, the faith that responds by a life of conviction, and the father that rewards a life of conviction. So when I think of this story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'm always reminded of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And if you're not familiar with him, I would encourage you to learn about him. He was a Lutheran pastor in the 1930s in Nazi Germany, um, very much against the Nazi movement. But what's so inspiring about him is that as Germany began to round up more and more people, more and more of their own people, Germans, who didn't agree with the direction of the country, Bonhoeffer had the opportunity to go to the United States, and he did just that in 1939 to avoid being conscripted into the German army. As a pastor, it doesn't look good to go fight for the Nazi. Makes sense, right? But while he was there, while he was in the United States, the Germans' need for Christ weighed so heavily on him that even though he knew the dangers, he wrote this He wrote this to one of his friends. He said, I've come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I don't share the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative Of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive, or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying civilization. I know from which of these alternatives I must choose, but I can't make that choice from security. So he returns. And after a time, he was arrested on charges of conspiring actually to assassinate Hitler, which which was false. But while being led away, he said this to another prisoner. He said, this is the end for me, the beginning of life. And in April of 1945, just a few weeks before the Soviets broke through, he was executed. But what an example of his faith, and what an example from one of our more modern martyrs, His faith in God was complete, and like he said, the end was certainly there, but what a beginning was also on the doorstep. So as we get into the scripture this morning, I want to make a few points. First, Daniel and his three friends, uh, though at different times, were brought to Babylon as captives. And this was a common technique of the time, when a kingdom defeated another in battle it would often take the wisest and the most beautiful, essentially the professional class, and instead of killing them, they would force them to assimilate into their culture. And then after a few generations, that group, which had started as captives, were now productive members of the kingdom's professional class. And this is exactly what we see with Nebuchadnezzar when he took over Jerusalem. And another thing he did is he actually changed their names. And really to draw them away from God to the pluralistic society that was Babylon at the time. And so in Hebrew, this is how their names were changed. So Daniel meant God is my judge. He was changed to Belteshazzar, meaning Bel, protect his life. And Bel was the chief Babylonian god. Hananiah, was, which means the Lord shows grace was changed to Shadrach, meaning command under the command of Aku. Aku was the, the moon god. Mishael, meaning who is like God, to Meshach, meaning who is like Aku. And finally, Azariah, the Lord helps, changed to Abednego, meaning the servant of Nego, which is the god of learning and writing. But as we're going to see, and as you probably know, these four, grounded in their faith, didn't let their actions be dictated by the circumstances that they found themselves in. So we're going to read this morning Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, prefects, the governors, counselors, treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, prefects, and governors, the counselors, treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree." And every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered them and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So the first topic I want to look at this morning is from verses 5 and 6. And what we see here. Is the forces that reveal a life of conviction. Looking back at these verses, we see the decree from Nebuchadnezzar that when the music is played throughout the day, all the people should immediately fall down and worship this statue, this giant, gaudy, gold statue. And those who don't will be killed. So at this time, the Babylonian Empire was what we call a pluralistic society It's really no different than our society in the United States. You have different cultures, religions, races, um, all together. No one's more important than the other. And so what makes this decree interesting is what the kingdom's position here is. Worship who you want in private, but in public, give homage to the kingdom. Give respect to the kingdom. Worship the kingdom. Then and only then... You can go back to your religions and to your gods. So if you look at the forces at play here, this is it. We have a king in Nebuchadnezzar who rules by fear, who has a short temper, who is blinded by arrogance and a desire for glory, a desire for worship, albeit forced, of his people. He has a few redeeming qualities, and we'll see this later. But then we have the statue, as you see on the screen. And what about the statue? So scripture tells us it's 60 by 6 cubits, which is 90 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. And I heard it mentioned, think more of like the Washington Monument when thinking of what this, this statue looked like. You can see the picture. And, of course, there's a lot to unpack with the statue itself which if you have a good study Bible, reading chapters 1 and 2 in Daniel will help you with this part. But if you remember from those chapters, in the dream, only the head was gold, representing Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. So look at the message that he is sending by constructing one entirely of gold. Again, it's a great place to spend some time and study. But Moving forward, we see the Chaldeans bring these accusations against Daniel and his friends. And this was not just a tattle. This was political mudslinging with very severe consequences. With so many different groups in Babylon at the time... Groups did whatever they could to ensure that theirs both got to the top and also remained. And so the Chaldeans were an ethnic group that originated actually in Ur, where if you remember from Genesis, that's where Abraham was from. And there's also some speculation that Nebuchadnezzar could have been part Chaldean. But again, the point here is that this was all political, and it was also very, very malicious. So the same forces that we see here in verses 5 and 6, a pluralistic society demanding private worship of God, demanding conformity to evil policies and procedures, are very much at play in 2022. A society that says all religions are equal, and though you're free to worship whoever or whatever you want, Don't you dare try to impose your beliefs on me. Don't do it. Because if you do, you will pay. And the absurdity in this position is this. This is no different than any other religion. By saying we should keep our position private and we shouldn't try to tell people of God is a religion in itself And it is doing the exact thing it claims we should not. So the revealing forces in chapter 3, these forces in Babylon, are very much alive and well today. But should we be surprised? Should we be filled with despair and filled with terror and angst? Well, what does Scripture tell us? Better yet, what does Jesus tell us about this? In John chapter 16, he said, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And then in Matthew chapter 10, he says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts. And flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then Paul tells us in his second letter to Timothy that indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So the revealing forces at work are not unexpected. Jesus himself tells us this. So the world is in a bad spot right now. And there are awful things at work in our country right now. And we should recognize that. But we should not grumble, lament, and complain our way through the days, but use them to show a life of conviction Because this is our opportunity. This right now in 2022 is an opportunity. And I want you to listen to this so that when our unbelieving neighbor begins to wonder why we also don't mope our way through life, why we don't complain about about everything that's wrong, that we are in a prime and authentic position to share the greatest news the world has ever known that you and me, sinners, in an awful state before God, in an awful state in front of the most holy of all, that we're forgiven. So the great awakening did not start when all was going well. The church was under attack. Secularism was, on, was rampant and rising. The church at the time was split into so many pieces It was impossible to keep track of and look what happened and are we not there now we are living right now in 2022 in one of the biggest opportunities since the great awakening and god is moving and it is time that we quit talking and complaining and griping and we join him And it's time that we get out of our own way, we surrender to him, and we let him work. Which leads us to the next point, which is our faith. The faith that responds to a life of conviction. So going back to the story here, we see the decree of Nebuchadnezzar, and we see the response in faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what do they do? They refuse. And what a lesson they teach us in their response. This is what faith looks like. Let's read again their response from verses 16 through 18. He says, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. We don't owe you an answer, is what they're saying. God can, they say, God can save us, but he will deliver us. And take note of this, they're saying he has the ability to do this, but he may not, but he will Without question, deliver us not to you, but to him, and our death does not make a difference whether it happens today or not. And this is the most powerful part here, the most powerful three words in this entire chapter but if not. And so the faith that responds, the faith that responds by a life of conviction, lies in these three words but if not. Because you see their lives are so ruled by faith, so ruled by the love of God, their knowledge of God, that they know his will is always going to be done. And they know this. And this is why we do a year of discipleship. And this is why we gather together. And this is why we study and we learn so that when we go through trials, which we will and which we are, we're prepared to respond in faith. Lord, please take this sickness away from me, but if not, Lord, please get me out of this debt, but if not, please remove this suffering, but if not. We should all pray that this will be our response in times of trouble, and this was real faith in times of real trouble, and execution was imminent, And not just any execution, but burning alive in some sort of industrial furnace by a leader with a penchant for anger. And now just to give Nebuchadnezzar some credit here, he does at least call these men forward to answer to the charges in person. He doesn't take a third-party report, because again, we talked about how political this was. But it's also worth looking at Daniel's absence. Was he away at the time? Who knows? But I agree with the idea that Nebuchadnezzar knew what his response was going to be. And so in order not to lose somebody that was so important to him politically and personally, he chose not to even bring him forward. But again, he brings Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego forward, and he really gives them two things. He gives them two things. He gives them a chance to speak to the charges, and then he gives them a chance to rectify the charges. And do they speak? And what we see is their faith on full display. And, and not a showy bumper sticker type of faith, but one that has been honed from study and prayer, and one that is, when tested, even in the face of certain death, stands like a rock. Now, I don't know if any of you remember the documentary that came out three or four years ago American Gospel. Um, I watched it, and I found it pretty convicting, and I will make a side note. If you find something interesting, good, and convicting, doesn't mean you agree with every point. I recognize there's some controversy in some of that documentary, and sometimes as Christians, we can be very quick to like discount a whole because of one piece that uh, maybe we don't subscribe to. But again, um, I thought it was uh, very, very convicting. Um, anyway, in it, there's a young mother... And she was, and I'm assuming still is, stricken with a very awful disease. I don't think they even knew, like, what it was. And, um, you know, she's on a feeding tube. Uh, She has small children. It's just, it's an awful spot. But she's interviewed throughout the movie, and her faith is very, very evident. And it's a strong faith. And it really, there was one comment that she made during this movie that really, really convicted me, and I, I still remember it to this day, but she said, God doesn't owe me an easy life. He doesn't owe me an easy life. But think about that, because you you know that she has prayed. She and her husband both have prayed so very hard for healing and for comfort. But if not, but if not, Lord, we know that you will deliver us. Billy Graham said it this way. He said, God doesn't owe us anything Yet in his grace, he still gives us good things. And in Philippians, Paul says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And this is why we study. And this is why we do our year. This is why we're in an F260 reading plan. Not to make us all scholars. It's so that when we're tested... And that when our lives are turned upside down, when we have those foundation-shattering moments in our lives, that we will respond in faith. Which brings us to the last point, which we see in verses 29 through 30, which is the father that rewards a life of conviction. Let's read these two verses. This is the decree of Nebuchadnezzar after seeing the men escape, the fire unharmed. And after seeing another in the fire, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own. Therefore, I make a decree any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Almost sounds like Nebuchadnezzar is a believer. And and I think he is. I think this may actually be his moment, but like like new believers, he's spiritually immature and he needs study and he needs prayer and he needs time with other believers. And since he's not there yet, what does he do? Well, he does exactly what he's always done. He issues an angry decree and basically says, "If anyone says anything bad about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'm going to tear their limbs off and burn down their house um, so you see he's he's got he's got some ways to go, but uh, he's everybody's got to start somewhere. Um, the interesting part here is also his reference to the angel in the fire in Hebrew here they use the term Malak, and it occurs in this configuration eight times throughout Scripture. And, and when it's used, it's referring to his angel or the angel of the Lord. So not a messenger of the Lord, but one who speaks as the Lord. So the pre-incarnate Jesus is what we see in the fire. And this, I mean, isn't this action just who the Father is? And this, this is the reward of a life of conviction, not the escape not the escape from the fire. As we know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego showed us whether God saves them from the fire or not, he's still good. He's still who he says he is. He's still the great I am. The reward is that all of this will be used for good, regardless of whether it is good. And this story, and in our stories, the Father does just that. So looking at chapter 3, it's a clear look into the sovereignty of God and his faithful people. We see how powerful he is and how he uses even the most dire circumstances for good. He makes it clear that in this world we're going to have problems and we're going to suffer at times because the world's not the way it's supposed to be right now. We see death and suffering. We see tyrants and dictators We see war and evil and we ask God to save us and we ask God to heal us and to soften the hearts of dictators and tyrants and to end war and end evil. And we ask earnestly for these things and it's right and it's good to do so. But if not, like they say, it's okay. It's fine. Because the action to address all of the above has already been completed. It's done, and the war has already been won, because one came for us and suffered with us and was killed by us to save us. And by our faith in him, though he may not heal us, he has already saved us. And because of this, death has been defeated, and it will merely be the blink of an eye in the eternity that we will spend with our Creator." And so, as we go through our lives and through our our time here on earth, our faith is going to be tested. It's going to be tested through physical trials. It may be tested with our health, mental trials, financial trials, trials in our marriages, and trials in our relationships. Our faith is going to be tested when we go through seasons of doubt and seasons where we feel very distant from God. And these are difficult times But during these times, we remember that though we may not feel like it, he's with us. So again, that's why we gather together as believers in corporate worship, because we need to be with other believers, and we're commanded to be with other believers. And so this is so good for us to do so. So know we're going to face these trials, and that's why we must take the time to develop godly convictions, convictions like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're told in Romans, do not be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, Tim Keller preached a sermon uh, a while back And I remember two points. He said, we can learn two things from the cross. There's two things we can learn from the cross. We learned that our sin is so serious that only the Son of God could atone for it. But we also learned that we are so valuable that the Son of God atoned for it. And so continue with your reading plans. Continue with your journals, your worship, your Bible study, your time with believers. Continue with your time with God. Your time in prayer and continue to praise. Continue to praise Him for the gifts He has given you, especially the gift of our salvation through His Son. And so, if you're here this morning and you don't know Him, I would encourage you to ask questions. You know, we have so many resources here, both in person and online, and we want to help, and we also have a duty to help. And if you're here and you've never developed a relationship with Him, And you've grown tired of the disappointment that the things of this world have to offer, that the things of this world eventually lead to. Talk to us. If the suffering of this world and the evil of this world have you wondering where God is, is He here? You're in the right place because He's here, and we know He's here because He tells us He's here. And He loves you no matter what. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you've strayed, no matter what you have in your past. No matter what you did last night, the creator of God loves you, and he loves you so much he sent his son on his behalf so that you may be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today, and we thank you for this group and our church. And Father, we also thank you for the ability to gather together in your name. We know that when we do so that you are here with us. Father, today we pray for our faith. Please help our faith continue to grow. Help it continue to grow as we read about you and we come to know you more so that when we have the trials that we know and that you tell us are coming, if we're not in them now, so that when we have these trials, Father, we will respond in faith in the same way that your servants Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Father, thank you for all of the gifts that you've given us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the salvation that we have through him, the greatest gift of all, Father. We ask all these in his beautiful name. Amen.